for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. I'm wondering if you're anything like me on a police procedural or a cop show or whatever. How do you respond when the law enforcement officer says, we're gonna get the son of, the, uh, we're gonna get the son of a so-and-so who did this, I promise. Are you like me going like, don't say that, you don't know. Am I, or am I just weird? Okay. Sometimes the Christian faith is promised like that. It's gonna be great, I promise you. Well, it's sort of like a, I don't know, a Thomas Kincaid painting. Are you familiar with his work? A lovely chapel and soft outline with mute colors in a lovely forest next to a bubbling brook, flowing to a distant mountain range with a glowing setting sun. Everything's gonna be fine. God promises no more debt, harmony in the home, peace in the valley, utter joy 24-7. But that's not the way it is, is it? You know that, and I know that. And what I appreciate about the Christian faith is that it addresses life the way it is, not the way we fantasize it. Now, the Peter who writes First Peter knows us. He knows what we live with. And when he puts before us, recalling last week's Peter Lippert's summary of 1 Peter, life as testimony, the recruiting power of the Christian way of life. Peter knows it's no cinch. As citizens, we live with disappointment. At home, we live with frustrations. At work, we face unfairness. That's why in the first part of our passage today, he says, it may not work out the way you want. You may do the right thing and still get beat up about it. Well, what's, what then? Where's Jesus? Peter's answer, because it's what Peter has experienced himself, is that's precisely where Jesus is. Peter considers people in this letter in vexing social circumstances. Now, there are three situations that our, that our lectionary, unfortunately, delicately skips over. In 3.1, Peter tells wives to stay in relationship with husbands who disobey the word, that is, who are tone deaf to and disinterested in the faith. And then he goes on, you never know when the way that you live might win them over. In chapter 2, verse 17, two verses before today's passage, Peter tells believers to honor the king. Well, and he's not talking about Queen Elizabeth II, who was a warrior for the faith, not even about King Charles, who, I don't know, he may be advocating, let's just all get along, to whom it may concern, fill in the blank. It's Caesar Nero, no friend of the church. That's who's the king. In verse 18, just before our passage starts today, the apostle addresses household servants, telling them, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, 
but also those who are dishonest or harsh or something. The word he uses is scolioi, which means twisted or crooked. We get the medical term scoliosis from it. Peter might have said more. Did he mean violent or simply curt? Did Peter mean crooked in the sense that the master engaged in illicit business and expected you to be complicit in his dishonest dealings? Or simply that a master might have a twisted sense of humor that you were supposed to put up with and laugh along with even though you thought it was stupid? Did Peter mean being mean? If so, there's a wide range of meanness from issuing verbal lashings to administering physical beatings. And Peter doesn't give guidance as to what the limits are, whether there comes a point to refuse to obey, to stand up and say, stop it, because his concern lies elsewhere. And here's where his concern lies. This Peter has had years to contemplate the meaning of having had his feet washed by his Savior, John chapter 13. Recall also this striking passage from the same night of that foot washing, John chapter 15, verses 13 through 15. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. Peter has had years to consider the significance of his savior calling him friend, no longer slave or servant. He's had years to internalize the significance of his friend laying down his life for friends like him. He has had years to remember that Jesus had called him friend, even knowing that Peter would deny him, lying about even knowing him. He has had years to work through how to lay down his life for others, the way his master and friend had modeled and taught. And Peter has come to understand that the transforming work of Jesus has put him at odds with a world that doesn't understand the value of selfless sacrifice. And so as Peter writes this epistle, he's helping us to find our bearings in the midst of a world in which at the high cost of the blood of our Savior, we've been made elect strangers. Peter knows that we're called friends and not servants, but that we're also called to take up basin and towel to lay down our lives in humble service. And so an intriguing thing happens in our passage. Peter turns to Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. It's on page 183. Five, five, just in case you left your own Bible at home, we got a few Bible if you want to take a look. Five times in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, five times, Peter quotes from Isaiah 53, showing how the suffering servant brings us straying sheep back to the bishop and shepherd of our souls. Hear those words again. To this you are called, he begins in verse 21. 
To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were sheep. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Unique among Peter, among unique among New Testament writers, Peter finds in Isaiah 53, not just Jesus offering his life as exchange, consider verse 24, he bore our sins that we might be free of sins, but also offering his life as example, consider verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving, leaving you an example so that you should follow his steps. Really, today it's just a two-point sermon, and it's buried here in the middle. He gave himself as an exchange. He gave himself as an example. This discovery of the example side of this equation, friends, it's a breathtaking discovery. No one else in the New Testament, hear me, no one else in the New Testament does quite this. Matthew sees in, my, in Isaiah 53, healing flowing from Christ. Jesus' healing ministry fulfilling Isaiah 53, 4. He took our infirmities and carried our diseases. Paul sees in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 12, a promise that Christ, the suffering servant, would be given over because of our transgressions and raised up for our justification, exchange, and healing. Stuff that Jesus does for us. But no one in the New Testament points up both this exchange and healing that Matthew and Paul see, but also the example aspects of Isaiah 53. Leaving you an example so that you should follow his steps. Now, Peter doesn't parse all the qualifications or all the exceptions. He offers... The suffering servant put, he offers the suffering servant, foot washing, friend of sinners answer for what to do with, well, for lack of a better term for our time, like a bad boss. Kill from below with kindness. You know, sometimes, as Abraham Lincoln observed, you can vanquish an enemy by turning them into a friend. Sometimes, the softer response to a harsh word from the up the chain of command can calm the waters, occasionally turning a critic into an advocate. Then again, sometimes, well, it just doesn't work the way we'd like. Among the people whom Peter says to honor is the emperor, the king. And the emperor of his day was Nero. Even as Peter was writing, Nero was preparing to unleash carnage against Christians because he wrongly blamed them for fires in Rome. Before too long, Peter himself would be arrested 
and condemned to death. And according to the apocryphal acts of Peter, the apostle was crucified upside down. The story goes that he requested that he be crucified in this manner, upside down, lest anyone think he presumed he was equal with his Messiah. And that scene is captured, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see it, captured in an unforgettable way by Caravaggio in 1601. And it's in a magnificent, he did a magnificent painting that hangs to this day in Rome's chapel, Santa Maria del Popolo. And it's like, he's like, Peter is being hung, he's upside down, he's like looking out at you. Will you follow me as I follow him? And that's why on Peter's shield, which is on this pillar right next to our baptismal font, that's why you have an upside down cross. That's one of the symbols of Peter. Now, on the one hand, that's not the greatest of outcomes. On the other hand, eventually the love that Peter and all the other martyrs displayed proved stronger than the pride and the pretense of all the Roman persecutors. As a result, to adapt a saying, while many will honor a son by naming him Peter, nobody would name anything but their dog Nero. Maybe you're called to a martyrdom as grand as Peter's. Maybe you're called to something more modest. For myself, I'm struck by how Peter offers as example from Isaiah 53, how Christ the suffering servant did this. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 23. For me, that hits close to home. I don't know, perhaps gives each of us something to think about. I mean, there's hardly a day that passes without some slight, some insult, some reason to be all grumpy, some reason to take offense. But following the example of Jesus, as Peter puts it out there for us, Every cut doesn't demand a repartee. Now the good news, for I love a good repartee. I love that slashing response. Fortunately, I don't usually think of it until 10 minutes later and the conversation's over. <laughs> every insult doesn't demand a response. And every assault on your manhood, your personhood, your whateverhood, does not threaten your manhood, your personhood, your whateverhood. When who you are is grounded in Christ, who gave no answer to his accusers, who gave no sharp comebacks, who responded with no retaliatory threats, and who did so both in exchange for you, taking all your sins to the tree, and as example for you. As though he were saying to you and me, the only way they will see who I am is to see me 
in you. And so I pray God gives us grace today, as Peter says, to offer life as testimony and show the recruiting power of the Christian way of life, loving one another, serving the unlovable as well as the lovable, honoring bosses, good and bad, hanging in with people whether they get us or not, and respecting and praying for leaders, wise and unwise. And so I end this week precisely where we ended last week. Whether it's as citizens, as family members, as people in the workplace, may we model Christ's humility and obedience, his genuine affection, very simply, loving from the heart. And now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think to ask, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church, now and forever. Amen. Amen.